Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, May 20th, 2022. It was on this day, getting into some history of uh, pop culture, it was on this day in 1989 that Gilda Radner, a one of the original stars or early stars of the TV show Saturday Night Live, passed away of ovarian cancer. She was married to actor-comedian Gene Wilder, and she struggled with cancer, but also made a big impact on the early years of Saturday Night Live when it began in the late 1970s. Back to the subject of history, it was on this day in 1927, working our way backwards in the years, that Charles Lindbergh began his transatlantic flight from Roosevelt Field on Long Island at 7.52 a.m., bound for Paris in France. It was on this day in 1775 that North Carolina, the colony, North Carolina, declared its independence from Britain. And in 1768, the fourth First Lady of the United States, Dolly Madison, was born, the wife of James Madison. And it was on this day in 325 that the First Council of Nicaea opened. It became the first of the ecumenical councils of the church, and it was from that council that we, at least in the Catholic Church, have our Nicene Creed, which we recite and proclaim every Sunday at the Mass. And it's actually the product of two councils, the First Council of Nicaea in 325 and the First Council of Constantinople in 381. And so given that, I thought I would speak on this day about the history of the councils of the church just to give a general overview, because in this day and age, one thing we hear a lot about, and we still hear, many decades after it happened, is Vatican II. And that's pretty much all most people, and especially most Catholics, know of the conciliar history of the Catholic Church. And if they know anything more other than Vatican II, then all they really know is Vatican II and not Vatican II that which was before Vatican II, and that which is after Vatican II. Or they presume that if there is a Vatican II, then there must have been a Vatican I, which of course there was. However, however, there's a whole history of the councils of the church in which the apostolic leadership of the church came together in council to settle, discuss, and deal with issues that arise within the church. And councils are distinct from synods, and the basic difference is synods consist of some, but not all, of the bishops throughout the world. Ecumenical councils include all of the bishops throughout the world, and there are other forms of councils, both regional, diocesan, and so on, but the church has come together in council or in synod to discuss issues all throughout the history of the church. And even today, when Pope Francis calls a synod of the church to talk about marriage, or Pope Benedict XVI maintained a synod called by John Paul II to discuss the Eucharist, immediately people start panicking. They think major changes are going to take place. They think there's going to be an upheaval, and they begin to worry about the future of the church. But if they knew 
the church's past, they would not be as worried about the church's future. And so I thought today I would talk about the various councils that the church has uh, undertaken throughout its history, and it all begins with the model of church councils, which we read in the 15th chapter in the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem, which those of you who go to daily Mass and haven't been doing the readings for the feast days, but the readings for the actual weekdays of this fifth week of Easter, will note that the last three days we have been hearing readings from the Acts of the Apostles about the Council of Jerusalem. And this Sunday, the first reading will be about the Council of Jerusalem. And the Council of Jerusalem dealt with a crisis in the early decades of the church, within the lifetime of the apostles. The church had an immigration problem. What was that immigration problem? There was an influx of Gentiles. Christianity, even before it was called Christianity, discipleship of Jesus of Nazareth, was seen more or less to be a sect of the Jewish faith. But as St. Paul and other apostles and other evangelists of the early church began to spread that good news of Jesus to the Gentile population, there began to be an influx of converts to Christianity who were not Jewish people. And the question began to arise, what do we do about these Gentile converts? Do we make them become Jewish? And specifically, do we make them adhere to the dietary rules in addition to all the other laws and observances that good Jewish people observe, including the circumcision of the men. Now, the Gentiles, for the most part, were not circumcised. So you had a lot of grown men who were coming into Christianity and were being told, you have to be circumcised. You have to observe the dietary laws of the, of the Jewish faith. You have to observe all the precepts of the law of the Lord as Jewish people observe them, and it became a burden for many of them. I can imagine the issue of circumcision would be a burden for the male converts to Christianity. Not necessarily a painless procedure. And so that became seen as a burden for many of these who have embraced the Christian faith, who believe in Jesus, but would be considered outsiders because they are required to undergo this Jewish initiation rite and observe Jewish observances. And those who insisted upon that were known as Judaizing Christians. And it's said that St. Peter, and I believe James, were among those who were in favor of that. However, Paul and Barnabas, two of the great evangelists to the Gentiles, were in favor of relaxing some of the Jewish observances in favor of the enthusiasm with which many Gentiles were embracing the Christian faith. So this became a crisis that divided the church. I mean, look, come on, heaven forbid we have divisions within the church between ideologies. We never see that, do we? Of course we see that. We see that all the time. We see that today. And there was that great division that the church leaders, the apostles, the presbyters, the elders had to come together. They gathered in Jerusalem and they discussed the issue. And the Acts of the Apostles does not tell us the process of the council itself. It tells us of the crisis, and it tells us that they gathered in Jerusalem to resolve the matter, and then it states the resolution, 
and Paul and Barnabas taking that resolution to Gentiles, I believe in Antioch, and of course they received it with great joy. I'm sure plenty of the men probably did too, once they learned they did not have to be circumcised. But the process of the council is merely described in one brief sentence. Actually, not even a sentence, a part of the sentence. It says, after much debate has taken place. Now, I would love to be a fly on the wall to have observed this debate among these hot-headed Jewish Mediterranean men. There were probably some good knock-down, drag-out arguments that took place because these were traditional practices that, according to tradition, had been given to Moses, who got it directly from God. These were precepts that God had given to his chosen people, and there were discussions of doing away with some of them. I can't imagine that the discussion was calm. It was probably very intense at times, probably very vibrant. There was probably a lot of pounding of tables and a lot of shouting. This was an intense issue between, one could say, more traditional Jewish Christians and more progressive Christians who wanted to bring in more of the Gentiles into the faith. There was probably a worry that the Christian faith would be overrun by Gentiles. And so perhaps culturally, they had these debates as well. But these were not low-keyed, unimportant issues that were being discussed. And in the end, much of the observances against paganism, eating meat, sacrificed idols, drinking of blood, and so on, were observed. Much of the principles in the Jewish moral life and the Jewish law were maintained. However, they did relax the requirement that the men be circumcised and the strict observance of dietary laws. And in so doing, did not add an extra burden to Gentiles whose culture was different from the Jewish faith, these Gentiles who wished to enter the Christian faith. And so the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem became the model for how the church resolves these issues regarding evangelization, regarding definitions and clarifications regarding matters of faith, and how the church engages in its apostolic activity to the world they are called to make disciples of all the nations. And that's not the first of the ecumenical councils, but it is an important council, the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem, which we read about in the 15th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. And the resolutions had mixed reviews, mixed reception. St. Paul speaks in the letter to the Galatians that he had to confront Peter, who he refers to as Cephas or Kephas, because Peter was not rigidly advocating for the resolutions of the council. St. Peter went up to Antioch, and immediately the Judaizing Christians in Antioch complained. They called him to task. They gave him a hard time for changing these tried-and-true traditions of the Jewish faith. They took exception to it. And how did Peter respond to these objections? Well, Peter responded like every good priest does when people complain. He gave in. He caved. He basically told them, if you want to go and continue to practice these observances, you go right ahead and do that if it makes you happy. And St. Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, says he went up to Antioch and opposed Cephas to his face because he was in the wrong. 
and he called Peter to task with regard to giving in to the people's lack of response to the resolution of the councils. And one thing that's very important to note that is featured in the first reading for this Friday, for today, is when Peter uttered his resolution of the council. He said, it is the will of the Holy Spirit and our decision as well. And that's a very important thing to remember with regard to the whole dynamic of ecumenical councils. The Holy Spirit works through the council, and the two are one and the same. When we understand the bishops working together, in this case the apostles and the, the elders and the presbyters, working together to resolve an issue in council, the Holy Spirit is understood to work through that. But we see in those very important words, it is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us. And then he utters the resolution of the council. So we must see the work and actions of a council as part of the movement of the Holy Spirit. And decisions of councils, decisions made in council, are in fact inspired. And we see that in the words in the Acts of the Apostles. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us as well. So keep that in mind because councils have been an important part of the history of the church, but as I go over these councils, I'm not going to go into them as, in as much detail as I did the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem, but when I talk about the years in which these councils take place, Make note that as we get closer to our modern era, we see councils that occur less frequently, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I'm not saying we should have a council every 10 years, but we look at entire gaps of our church's history that were without councils and the periods in which there were councils. So let's take a look at some of these councils. I mentioned already the Council of Nicaea, which was actually called by the Emperor Constantine. This was after the end of persecutions, because in those first 325 years, the church was not as concerned with solidifying, although you had great apostolic writers and the great fathers of the church whose writings helped to develop the foundations of church teaching, but you didn't see them coming in council because survival, survival at the same time putting down their roots were at the heart of the church's existence and activity. They were surviving persecutions, sporadic and sometimes very serious persecutions, but also laying down the roots of church teaching as they were beginning the spread of the gospel to the known world at the time. But the emperor Constantine, now that he had a united kingdom, now that he had legalized Christianity, he wanted a united church so that his kingdom wouldn't be further divided. So he called the Council of Nicaea, to deal with questions with regard to the teaching of Arianism and the errors that Arianism put forth regarding uh, the divinity and humanity of Jesus. And it is from that, among other things that had been discussed, that we had the Nicene Creed developed, which we pray every Sunday. Also, the Council of Constantinople, the first council in Constantinople, discussed heavily how we understand the divinity of the Holy Spirit as part of the Holy Trinity. And so the Council of Nicaea occurred in 325 and Constantinople in 381. 
The third council is the Council of Ephesus, which condemned Nestorianism. Now, Nestorianism was a Greek philosophy that understood Jesus as the Word made flesh, but taught that Jesus was not divine until after the resurrection. Which, when you think about it, makes sense in a Greek-speaking world in which you have heroes and demigods. For example, Hercules, or as he is known in Greece as Heracles, he was the great strong man of Greek mythology, and after he died, Zeus granted him a place in the pantheon of gods. So there was an apotheosis of Hercules, but after he died. So it makes sense that a Greek culture would draw the same conclusions about Jesus, that Jesus was a great teacher, the Son of God, the Messiah who died on the cross, but it was after he rose from the dead that he became divine. Well, the Council of Emphasis clarified that, looking at the writings in the scriptures, the teachings of the apostles and the early fathers of the church, the worship life of the church, looking at what the church has been doing all along. They didn't decide that Jesus was divine, but defined the teaching that all along it has been preached and understood that the Word made flesh in Jesus, Jesus is therefore divine from the moment of his conception. And I go into a little detail like this because one of the byproducts of that resolution in the Council of Ephesus is the understanding of Mary as mother of God. The Greek term is Theotokos, the God-mother, the mother of God. And it was after the Council of Ephesus that devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary as mother of God took off. And of course, she's a great uh, figure of veneration and devotion in the Catholic Church down to today. The fourth council was the Council of Chalcedon, and among other things, it declared Jesus Christ to be true God and true man. We see that in the divine praises. There were other issues that these councils discussed, but as we see in these early councils, they gathered to solidify a unified and clear definition of the church's teaching so that it can be taught consistently. Now that the church has the security of not being persecuted, it needed to be organized, especially in terms of its teaching, so that in an age where we did not have the internet, we did not have mass transit, we did not have live broadcasting, they had to get, in a way, the teaching straight. And definitions were developed, and dogma was solidified into a cohesive teaching, and the Council of Chalcedon, under Pope St. Leo I, defined Jesus as truly God and truly human. And that council was in 451, just 20 years after the Council of Ephesus. The second Council of Constantinople occurred about 102 years later in 553. And the third Council of Constantinople occurred just a little less than 130 years later in 680 AD. I won't get into all the, the, the details of what they discussed, but they were all mainly doctrinal councils, addressing errors in teaching and more finely defining the teachings of the church. So Constantinople III was in 680, and 107 years later was the Second Council of Nicaea that dealt with the issue of the veneration of images, especially in the Eastern churches, in the Eastern Orthodox churches, even down to today, the veneration of images and icons was, and still is, an important part of their worship tradition. And the Second Council of Nicaea 
discussed that. Is that worshiping idols or is it not? And the resolutions came to an understanding of that. It also led to some misunderstanding because the resolution of the councils were written in Greek and had to be translated into the languages for the Eastern kingdoms. And there were some mistranslations and misunderstandings which resulted. And it eventually it took part and was a part of the reason why the East and West split between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. A little less than 100 years later, in six, excuse me, 869 A.D., the Fourth Council of Constantinople took place. And so we have eight councils within just a little over 500 years, from 325 in the First Council of Nicaea to 869 in the Fourth Council of Constantinople. So that's eight councils in just a little over 500 years, a little under 550 years. So there was a lot of activity in the church of the bishops coming together to discuss matters of faith so that the Catholic Church can present a unified teaching that it has more refined and defined for future teaching and future evangelization. The next four councils all took place in the Lateran, the Lateran Basilica in Rome. And all of them took place within 100 years, these four councils, within 100 years. In 1123, the First Lateran Council discussed lay investiture, who has the authority to appoint bishops and other church leaders. Is it the local kings and lords, or is it the pope and other bishops? It was a big controversy at the time. The First Lateran Council met to discuss that. The Second Lateran Council took place less than 20 years later, in 1139. The Third Lateran Council, which discussed the Albigensians and Waldensians, and if you want to know more about them, there's always the internet, but again, I don't want to get off on the details of these groups, but they were different groups, erroneous theologies or practices that the church had to address. And that Third Lateran Council took place in 1179. So from 1139 to 1179, you have 40 years between a council. And then finally in 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council took place to more greatly refine the formal confessions of faith, look to some reforms within the church, and discuss the issue of transubstantiation as an explanation and teaching for what happens during the consecration in the Mass, the Fourth Lateran Council. So all these councils, these four Lateran Councils, took place within a hundred years. So again, a great deal of conciliar activity in the Catholic Church. The next few councils were late medieval councils and were mainly of historic interest, but not so much dogmatic or theological in interest. The First Council of Lyons in 1245. The Second Council of Lyons in 1274. Again, from the Fourth Lateran Council to the First Council of Lyons, or Léon, uh, is just 30 years. And then between the First and Second Council of Lyons, 
from 1245 to 1274. Not that much time. And forgive me if I'm pronouncing Lyons or Leon wrong. I, I've been corrected on that in both directions uh, in time past. But the Second Council of Lyons in 1274 discussed efforts to reunite with the Eastern Orthodox Church and solidify the practice of papal elections. The Council of Vienna took a couple of years, from 1311 to 1312, dealing with the Knights Templars and a group called the Fraticelli. And then 102 years later, the Council in Constance, in part took place in Constance, dealt with the Great Western Schism that led to the uh, reality of two popes, eventually three popes, and I think I discussed that history in a previous podcast. But the Council of Constance solved that crisis, whereas the Synod, in which some bishops gathered, the Synod of Pisa did not resolve it and merely res uh, resulted in a third pope when the other two popes did not acknowledge the authority of the Synod. But the Council of Constance, in which all the bishops if not the vast majority of them came together in the resolution, then, you know, let's face it, when you're a pope rivaling with another pope and all the bishops are gathering for a resolution that you need to follow, how much of a pope are you going to be when all of the bishops have come for this resolution? It's basically, if you don't, then who are you? What kind of a pope are you if you don't have the backing of the vast majority, if not all of the bishops? And there was one pope who did not acknowledge the authority of Constance, and he basically, in a nutshell, went and played pope somewhere, until eventually, a few years after the council, he persuaded his cardinals to acknowledge Martin V as pope, that the, the council had um, elevated as pope, and then he acquiesced to the council. So eventually, it was solved. Not immediately, but the Council of Constance solved that crisis in the church. Then we have, in 1431 to 1445, so a council that took place over a period of 14 years, the Council of Basel, Ferrara and Florence. So it took place in it took place in three different cities. Again, speaking of the reunion of East and West and looking to other reforms within the church. But if the Council of Constance ended in 1418, the Council of Basel began in 1431. So again, not that many years between councils, less than 20, 13 years in fact, between the Council of Constance and the Council of Basel which ended in 1445, and again, less than 100 years, the 18th Ecumenical Council, the 5th Lateran Council, took place from 1512 to 1517. And one of the things the 5th Lateran Council discussed, which I have brought up in many of the scripture studies that I have given in the parishes I have served, is a document called How to Preach, or On How to Preach. And one of the resolutions of the Council is the forbidding of using the Scriptures to predict the end of the world, something that many apocalypticists love to do. Here's what the Scripture says, so they try and calculate when it will happen, and how it will happen, and what we will see when it's about to happen. The Fifth Lateran Council expressly forbids that, and absolves anyone of the obligation of listening to anyone who preaches the end of the world. However, it end, that council ended in 1517, which was the year the Protestant Reformation began. So one might say, well, if the church forbade it, why do we still have Christian groups that do it? Well, 
Obviously, the council was called to address other issues as well, but this issue had to be addressed because there were groups within the Catholic Church that were doing that, using the scriptures to predict the end times and the end of the world. And those groups simply segued, no doubt, into some of the Protestant breakoffs during the Reformation. And we continue to see that, at least that, that fundamentalist tradition, even down to today. But in 1517, the Protestant Reformation took place. And between 1517 and 1962, so a period of over 400 years, only three councils took place. Now you look at the history of the councils up to then. The four Lateran councils took place within 100 years. You had some councils taking place, as in the case of Constance and Basil, they took place 13 years apart. A hundred years was perhaps the longest period between councils. But after the Fifth Lateran Council, between 1517 and 1962, only three councils took place, the first of which took place over a period of 20 years, addressing the issues and doctrinal definitions and liturgical practices in light of the Reformation was the Council of Trent. And that became the council for the next 400 years. Now, when you consider 2,000 years of church history, 400 years is basically one-fifth of the church's history. But the Council of Trent was the measure of everything after that, including the traditional Latin Mass that so many people hang on to, and many people believe is a long and old tradition of the church. But as I said in a previous podcast, over the two millennia of Catholicism and Christianity, multiple rites have developed until now we have about 28 rites in the Catholic Church that are celebrated, most of them in the East, but at least five are celebrated in the West. But it was in the Council of Trent that the Tridentine Mass became the norm, unless a rite had existed for 200 years or more. Then that became the norm for that particular community. But it was in the Council of Trent that we saw this traditional Latin Mass take form and become the universal celebration of the Mass in the Western Catholic Church. And so for about 400 years out of 200, it's traditional, but not all that traditional when you look at other traditions in the church. But this is how the church rallied after the Reformation, brought forth a counter-reformation to reform the abuses uh, that were taking place in the Catholic Church that may have led to the Protestant Reformation, but also solidified and um, codified other doctrinal definitions in light of what the Reformation was saying with regard to the Christian faith. And the Council of Trent took place between 1545 and 1563. So almost 20 years, 18 years was the process of this council. But then there was nothing after 1563 until 1869. So 306 years later, before we had another council, and that was Vatican I. 306 years later. And Vatican I, while an ecumenical council, was not a major, major council of the church, but it did address modern errors in theology. But the big issue it addressed is papal infallibility, another thing that many people think is as old as the church. And yes, what it did was recognize the authority that the pope has always had, but not only the pope, but ecumenical councils. Because many people think that papal infallibility is all there is, and that the Pope does nothing but sit in his chair and stamp decrees of infallibility. 
but it defined papal infallibility, that when he speaks ex cathedra in a formal manner, when he speaks from the chair of St. Peter in his role as successor of Peter, it carries the weight of infallibility. He doesn't just walk outdoors one day, see it raining, and say, oh, what a beautiful day we're having, what beautiful weather this is, and now suddenly it's an infallible teaching that rain constitutes beautiful weather. No, he has to formally declare it, and it's a formal ceremony, and in 2,000 years of church history, and over 150, 60, 160 years since the first Vatican Council, the Pope has spoken infallibly a grand total of once. When Pius XII declared the doctrine of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So those who think we only follow the infallible teachings of the Pope, there's only one teaching that's infallible ever made in, in the history of the Church. Some would ask why the Pope doesn't make an infallible statement about abortion. The answer to that is he doesn't have to, because another definition of infallibility is when the Pope speaks in union with all the bishops throughout the world. A consistent teaching carries with it the weight of infallibility. Just the churches as a teaching office as a whole. And this is best illustrated, this unified teaching of the bishops with the Holy Father, this is best illustrated in, you guessed it, an ecumenical council. When the church speaks in ecumenical council, it carries with it the charism of infallibility as defined by the First Vatican Council. And think about it. Was it the Pope who declared himself infallible? No, it was an ecumenical council. Was it the Pope who declared himself the successor to Peter? No, it was a synod in Ephesus affirmed in the Council of Chalcedon. Was it the Pope who declared Mary as Mother of God? No, it was a council, the Council of Ephesus. And the First Vatican Council defined that charism within the Church, that charism of infallibility, which the Pope has in virtue of his office and exercises it formally, not frivolously, but formally. And the Pope has done it a grand total of once since its definition which means it's a grand total of once in 2,000 years of church history, which means there are plenty of other teachings, in fact, the vast majority of church teachings that we adhere to that are not a product of infallible statements. But the role of the Pope was more formally defined in the First Vatican Council, which took place from 1869 to 1870. And then we have the Second Vatican Council, which John Twenty-Third now St. John the 23rd, called in order to address the fact that the church had to face a modern world in its efforts for evangelization. Think about it. Just in the 20th century alone, there were two world wars. In both wars, at least in the European theater, both sides had Catholic chaplains. Both sides had Catholic chaplains. What impact was Catholicism having on the world? The Pope had no impact, and the Church had no impact, when it came to the world going to war. How relevant was the Church in the modern world? This was a crisis for the Church. People loved to be in their little ruts, in their Latin masses, in their individual 
groups within the church, within society, doing their own thing. But we were seeing the world becoming more and more secular. And I certainly, speaking from San Francisco, can vouch for that because this city here was once a very Catholic city. Heck, the Catholic Church founded this city. It's named for a Catholic saint. And now it is one of the most secular, some would say anti-Catholic, but certainly secular cities in the world. What impact is the church having in the world, in the modern world? And John the Twenty-Third wanted to address that. How does the church relate and work in the modern world? And most people think of Vatican II as two things, modified religious habits and changes in the Mass. But there was so much more to the Second Vatican Council, which resulted in 16 documents to address the inspiration and the role of the church. Let me just go through the list, and I'll conclude with that, because the Second Vatican Council is a very rich event. It wasn't exactly a renaissance for the church that there was only three councils in 400 years, and only two in 399 years, Vatican I and Vatican II, since the Council of Trent. When you look at how many councils, the richness of councils, the definition, the collaboration among the bishops, the Holy Spirit working through the bishops, as the Acts of the Apostles states in the Council of Jerusalem, we didn't see that for over 400 years after the Fifth Lateran Council. We just had Trent, Vatican I, and Vatican II, whereas prior to that, we had a plethora of councils, a true richness of teachings within the work of the bishops, together with the Holy Father in the history of the church. But now the Second Vatican Council is addressing how the church evangelizes in the modern world. Who is the church? What is the church? And one of the things it brought forth for the first time in 2,000 years was a constitution on the church. When we think of the constitution, we think of the U.S. Constitution and, and the British Constitution, constitutional monarchies, how, an or, how a government is, or, is organized. For the first time, the church developed a dogmatic constitution, Lumen Gentium. But I get ahead of myself. The main thrust in these documents is that all things begin with God and flows through the church and out into the world. And the documents, which I'll give in order of that flow, not in order of their, their uh, approval, not the dates of their approval, but the order of that flow, that all things come from God, flow through the church into the world, begins with a document on divine revelation, Dei Verbum, in which God takes the initiative, revealing himself, inviting people to himself to reform the church, to inform the church, and drive the church to evangelization. All things begin with God, Dei Verbum, the Word of God. And from that, we have a declaration. In addition to that, we have a declaration on Christian education. So God reveals, and we must teach Christian education. God reveals and gives it to the church. There's a dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, and a decree on the, on the Catholic Eastern churches. Again, I spoke of in a previous podcast, there's a whole group of Eastern churches that participate in union with the Catholic Church. And there's a document that is the decree on the Catholic Eastern churches, not the Orthodox churches, the Catholic churches of the East. So it flow, goes from God, comes from God, flows through the church, and the church consists of people. There are people within the church. 
This isn't just this generic thing. What's the old phrase we learned as children? Here's the church, there's the steeple, open the door and look at the people. The people make up the church, and the people do two things. They preach and they worship. But who are the people within the church? There are decrees on the people. First, there's a decree on the apostolate of lay people. How many of you listening know and knew that Vatican II produced a document on the laity and the work that the laity are called to do? in support of the work of the church. Not many people. I've given this talk on Vatican II before, and I asked the question, how many people here are laity? I'm, not, I'm the only one there not raising my hand because I'm a priest. How many knew that there was this document? At most, two people raised their hand consistently whenever I've given this presentation. But there's a document on the laity. There's a decree on the up-to-date renewal of religious life, and this is the document that many religious have interpreted to do away with the traditional habit. Others did not. But there's the decree on the up-to-date religious renewal of religious life. There's a decree on the training of priests, so that we have seminarians in the church. There's a decree on the ministry and life of the priests. And there's a decree on the pastoral office of bishops in the church. So these are the people within the church. Lay people, religious, priests, seminarians, and bishops. So it comes from God and flows through the church that consists of people who do two things, preach and worship. And there is a document called the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sancro Sanctum Concilium, which is the document on the worship of the people. And there's a decree on the church's missionary activity, which talks about the church's call to preach, the two actions of the faithful, worship and preaching. And we don't preach and work in a vacuum. We don't worship in a vacuum. We worship in a world that is concrete and modern. And so there is the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. We live in a world in which not everyone is Catholic. There's the decree on ecumenism. We live in a world in which there are people who are not Christian. There's a declaration on the relation of the church to non-Christian religions. And in a world in which there's a multiplicity of faiths, the church is there to evangelize and make disciples of all the nations, but we are not going to ram it down people's throats. We will preach it. We will work toward a world that is reflective of Christian values, but we will not force people to convert because that is the work of the Holy Spirit done through the church. We have a declaration on religious liberty. And there's where many people have misinterpreted the Vatican's Council in saying that anybody can reach God in any way. No, that's not what the Vatican Council states. It states that as human beings, we have the freedom to worship freely. We have religious liberty but in, the, in that frame of religious liberty, we reserve the right to preach and bring people into this one faith of Jesus, the Catholic faith in which Jesus gives himself sacramentally to those who come before him. And we must communicate this faith. So, last but not least, but among the earliest documents to be approved, is the decree on the means of social communication. So those are the 16 documents, Divine Revelation and Education, Constitution of the Church, and the Catholic Eastern Churches, a 
decree on the apostolate of lay people, decree on religious life, training of priests, priests, and the office of bishops, decree on our missionary activity and a constitution on our worship, and then the constitution of the church in the modern world, decree on ecumenism, relation to the church to non-Christian religions, declaration of religious liberty, and the decree on the means of social communication. How many of my listeners, not sure how many I am gathering at this point in the history of my podcast, but how many listening now have read the documents of Vatican II? They are accessible. Some of them are really, really good reads. I'll admit some of them are boring. But if you read any of them, there are those that I like to refer to as the big four. One is Divine Revelation, Dei Verbum. Two, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. Three, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sancro Sacrum Concilium. And four, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. If you read any of them, read those four. And then, whatever your status in life is. If you're a layperson, read the Decree on Laity. If you're a religious, read the Up-to-Date Renewal on Religious Life. If you're a seminarian, read the Decree on the Training of Priests. If you're a priest, for crying out loud, read the Decree on the Ministry and Life of Priests, and I hope the bishops have read the Decree on the Pastoral Office of Bishops in the Church. But read those four that I mentioned, and then also, if you aren't going to read all of them, read the ones that pertain to your calling and your status as a part of the Catholic Church. And so, I think I've pretty much hammered this pretty well on this anniversary of the beginning of the first ecumenical council as we are reading in our readings on weekdays and this Sunday of the Council of Jerusalem that the history of the councils of the Catholic Church is a rich one and there's more to the Catholic Church than the things we love or are disappointed with in Vatican II. There were a lot more councils than Vatican II, but if there's one thing you remember, especially as a result of Vatican I, that we cannot declare Vatican II invalid. If we don't like its decrees, then we have to grapple with them, because Vatican II is not invalid. Vatican II is infallible. Because if Vatican II is not infallible, then councils are not infallible. And if councils are not infallible, then the Pope is not infallible, because it was a council that declared the Pope to be infallible. So you see just you know, one thread we pull, and it can unravel our entire tradition as a church. We need to approach it with faith, less bitterness, more learning, more understanding, more growth, less entrenchment, and more forward thinking as Jesus told us to go forth and make disciples of all the nations. So I hope all this made sense, and I've gone a little long, I know, but I hope it's been interesting, I hope it's been worth it, and I'll leave it at that on this anniversary of the... F First Ecumenical Council's beginning. Thank you for listening, and with any luck, I will talk to you again soon.